number 366. This is very interesting. With all thy getting, says the Bible, Proverbs 4, 7, get understanding. What people may ask is the meaning of get understanding. The understanding implied is wisdom. The master explained that wisdom doesn't come from books. It comes from discrimination. Discrimination is necessary, he said, and doesn't come by reasoning only, but by soul intuition. Reason can help one to understand the how of things, that is, how they work, how they occur. It cannot, however, show one the subtle inner relationships between things, nor can it, in a deeper way, show the why of things. Discrimination is an individual exercise. It is the wave aware that is dancing on the ocean of spirit. Wisdom comes with deepening one's perception of the absolute. The understand that the understanding that is wisdom is universal. I was laughing inwardly. I believe I gave a class on Swamiji's notes on discipleship. And I gave a whole class on determination. And then the following week, I had to come in and say that I had misread it. It was on discrimination. <laughs> but I managed to make a whole teaching out of something that wasn't even in the notes. <clears throat> so this is actually about discrimination. I, this was interesting to me. Let me just sort of think about all the different parts of this that are interesting. When I was 18, I... I went to Stanford University as a freshman, and I had high hopes that at the university I would find something I really wanted to know. And my first week I signed up for a class called Consciousness, because that was what was happening at that time. And I remember going to the class, and immediately it was obvious to me that we were not on a quest for truth. We were just on a quest for information. And what we were going to do is we were going to read a lot of different people's opinions about whatever it was that we were discussing. And we would all become expert in everybody's point of view. But there would be no effort made. In fact, there would be deliberately no effort made to compare one to another and to in any way discern what might be the most valid point of view, which is when I began to drop out of college, which was in my first week. I can't remember whether I really even went back to that class. I was so shocked. I, I was so naive and so shocked that they were so uninterested in truth. They were just interested in information. I didn't have all those words really clearly at that time. That they were highly intelligent, but they weren't wise. And I just thought that things would be wise. Here's, here's something interesting, which just by the way, on that same topic. I read, um, somebody loaned me the book that James Comey wrote after he was fired from being the director of the FBI. This is not going to be a political conversation. Um, it, it's a book is called higher, A Higher Kind of Loyalty or Higher Loyalty. It's a good title. And uh, he talked about gradually rising through the ranks of the American government. And I guess he, he served also, he served several presidents. I think he served Obama, uh, the second the second Bush president, and maybe even one other, before he was what he was. My eyes itch, excuse me. 
And he said the first time when he, I guess it was when Bush was president, and he was called into the situation room, you know, the big thing where the fate of the world is decided from the American point of view. And he suddenly realized that it it was just us. (laughs) I mean, it was just like they were all just people. And he somehow had, some part of his mind had thought that somehow when you're sitting there and you're the president of the United States and you have all your advisors around you, that there's a different order of magnitude happening. The impact of what they did was a different order of magnitude, but he was a little concerned about the fact that it was just a bunch of guys trying to make the best decision they could. He, he put a, a good face on it, but I realized when I read that, that was actually a really um, interesting description of what happens to a lot of us before we get onto the spiritual path, which is you advance through childhood to adulthood to this experience, to that experience, whether it's success in business, in my case, my very brief experience at a prestigious university, and you begin to see the difference between knowledge, position, status, even intelligence, and actual intuitive wisdom. And, of course, not everybody perceives that difference. I don't think James Comey graduated from where he was. I, his, his whole book, which was actually quite interesting, was just about trying to do his dharma at the highest level that he could think of. That's why he called it a higher loyalty, which was their, their loyalty is to truth and integrity itself, not to position or presidents or politics that they always have to operate according to Dharma. He didn't have those words. So it was elevated from that point of view. But what happens to those of us who eventually end up on the spiritual path, and I certainly, this, this was my story from a young age. I, I was introduced to the path just before I was 19, so I didn't really have a lot of, I had almost no adult life and very little life at all before the answer was brought to me. But nonetheless, that didn't in any way diminish the, the quiet intensity of my desire for truth from, from as young as I can remember. I was just always, I always wanted to know what was really true. My mother, who was a very nice woman in many ways, um, allowed her reason to follow her feelings. And I never quite trusted her because of that from being very small. She was quite bright. And oftentimes, I mean, I'd, I mean, she was a very intelligent woman. And, and at times in my life, she gave me very good advice. And when she did, I recognized it. But often I could see that she was justifying her prejudices, which for me is like a six or a seven-year-old child. It was just shocking to me. Just like, um, not just because she was my mother. It was just the principle of it that you would... Now, of course... As I've grown wiser in self-knowledge, I realize that I justify myself all the time according to my emotions, but not as blatantly as she seemed to do it, or so it seemed to me. But there would be that, that just that quality of truth being the highest value. My own life has had to learn the difference between facts and truth. Sometimes asserting the facts is not the same as asserting the truth, because you can kill the energy with the facts. And, you, and sometimes you, the facts are not relevant because 
a higher truth has to be given an opportunity to manifest. But saying all of that, um, you know, that experience at Stanford, after which I basically flunked out because I just couldn't, um, I just couldn't cope with the superficiality of it. And I couldn't cope with the lack of commitment to truth, which just seems so self-evident to me. Um, so, let's see, so what, what were we going here? So, um, so this whole word discrimination, which is such an interesting word and is such a fundamental word on the spiritual path, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to discern reality from maya. I mean, what you're trying to discriminate through is you're trying to discriminate what merely seems true to what actually is true. And he talks about it, he says, it's an individual exercise, which is sort of an interesting way to put it, because it's not a, it's not a group consensus. You may find other people who, who end up perceiving reality as you perceive it. This is what Ananda gives us. It gives us kindred spirits that we can relate to. But nothing is true merely because a lot of people think it's true. And that's what he means it by being an individual exercise. After 300 years, Emperor Constantine had a vision of Jesus and converted his whole empire to Christianity. And suddenly Christianity became, you know, a, a notable thing in history. And it was from that point that the influence of Christianity really took hold. But Swami's comment was, mass conversion is not conversion. If everybody becomes Christian because the emperor declares that this is our religion now, even if you're not killed for not believing it, it's just now it's everybody's opinion. And discrimination is where, you, where nothing can sway you away from it. It isn't just a question of beliefs. It's, it, and it, it comes from the inside. I had an experience many years ago of being invited by two Episcopal priests who were, who were Creobans who I knew through Ananda, but they still maintained their churches, both of them. And they invited me to be part of a retreat that was being held for Episcopal priests. Um, at that time, it was almost all men. Now it would be almost all women, but it was almost all men. There was one or two other women there. And I was very new at the, the work that I've been doing for decades now, which is really meeting people in lots of different phases of spiritual life and having to present something that's helpful to them. I wasn't as experienced then. And actually that experience was a really beneficial one. And it, it took me... Oh, well, the, the first thing that happened was it, it was Monday, and which is, of course, clergyman's day off, because all of them write their sermons on Saturday. There was a lot of, you know, banter back and forth about... Saturday is not a holiday for a clergyman because when they write out their sermons and then print them before they read them at service, which is, was altogether foreign to me, of course, Monday's the holiday. So there was a lot of joking about Monday being the day off. And everybody was just bantering back and forth and having a really good time in a very natural way. Then there was, we were going to have lunch, so there was a, a little bit of good-natured competition as to who would say grace because the whole room is clergy. <laughs> and uh, finally... Walt or somebody takes over and whoever he was and all of a sudden now he's saying grace and he says we just were talking like normal people he says 
beloved Lord, like this. I began to giggle because I thought we were still joking. Yeah, really. And then I realized that he was not joking, so I, I literally tried to make it seem like a cough, you know, because I was so embarrassed and I didn't really want to embarrass myself. But it was like, now we're talking about, or talking to God, so we have to become somebody that we weren't just a few seconds before. And it was sort of the beginning of, as my friend said later, he said, the whole time you were there, you looked like you'd just been like transported, certainly from another country, conceivably from another planet, <laughs> and that you were always, everything that was said to you, you were always mentally translating it into whatever your own language was. <laughs> and I mean, it was so obvious, and that was exactly what I was doing. I was trying to comprehend what was being said to me, then, then try to run it through some filter that made sense to me so I could offer something back that would at least be comprehensible and hopefully helpful. But what I, I with one or two exceptions, what I realized, and I, it, um, these were all good men. There was, it wasn't like these were, these were good people. But they had studied their faith and then accepted it. And it was more, it was more like they had learned it rather than experienced it. And they were convinced, and they were convincing, and they were intelligent, and they knew their principles. But I could feel that, our, I just like, I discovered that who I was actually matched something that existed, if, if that makes sense. When I discovered self-realization in Sanatana Dharma and Vedanta and Eastern religion and meditation, it, it was an articulation of what I knew. It, I wasn't persuaded by the articulation. I was. I recognized it was describing what I experienced. So I, it didn't. It didn't persuade me because it was so smart, or anything like that. And it just there was nothing wrong with these men. But I could see they just come at it differently, and they wanted to have an inner experience. That was why I'd been invited there. I must have taught the meditation. That would have been the obvious thing for me to do. I couldn't have discussed theology because they wanted to, and with one or two exceptions, there was one man in particular, actually, besides my two friends, who he was just completely different. And you could just see, I still remember him, I don't remember his name, but he made, he just stood out because he had an inner life, it was obvious, that he'd become a clergy person from the inside out. And uh, it, it was just, it was very interesting to just see how different he was. He wasn't he wasn't interested in this path, but I could tell that he had a life that was different. Um, so what, that's what Master's trying to, to talk to us about. And, you know, this is the whole path of self-realization, which is not institutional religion. There, there's not a dogma. There's principles involved, but those principles are the perceived reality that all of us get on the path to perceive, and it becomes persuasive because we can experience it. And then at a certain point, you experience enough of the truth of what the masters have told you that you have an inclination to believe the rest of what they've said. But that even that is an act of discrimination. It's not an act of authority. It's not an act of a threat. It's not like... I, I was thinking about Ananda itself a lot recently, that leadership at Ananda is, is only incidentally about position. It's, it's like people do not have authority because they have a position. They have authority because they have magnetism, 
And if they have magnetism, then people will be inclined to listen. And because they're willing to take responsibility. And that's really the second part of it, is that people who are willing to take responsibility and put their responsibility to the work and to other people ahead of other considerations, um, uh, what do I say? They develop magnetism. It actually goes together. They develop magnetism and they are respected by the community because because they show up, because they, you know, they can be relied upon in a certain sense. And as a consequence, such people often also have position. But if they don't have those qualities, position alone, like most organizations, but people that are under extremely clever at avoiding people they don't really want to listen to. And we have no enforcement system. I often think how useful it would be to have an enforcement system when you could threaten people with eternal hell it it made getting your way much simpler. You know, that's that, that was seriously what used to happen in the Catholic Church. Like, if you were excommunicated, which is the most extreme, but if you broke certain rules, I mean, it was really about eternal damnation. So it, it kept people pretty strongly on the straight and narrow, which is among the reasons why so-called traditional morality is completely disintegrated in this age, because nobody thinks they're going to hell anymore. And when you thought you were going to hell, it, it was had it was a very constraining influence. But now that everybody's convinced you're not going to hell, then any motivation, except for, for actual discrimination, is gone away. Now, this is the good news. Swami's overall point of view about the total disintegration of any kind of external authority, which is more or less what we're working with now, um, is a good thing because it forces people to make their own experience the criteria for their decisions. Now, of course, it also allows people to just uh, run, run wild, run wildly amok, but merely because they were too frightened or too constrained by society from behaving that way did not mean in any way that they were free of those impulses. It just meant they didn't have the opportunity to express them. And so, therefore, they just were submerged, waiting for the opportunity to come out, which is why everybody's Babaji's children. You know, you just get a lot of um, quite undisciplined individuals getting the opportunity to try out a lot of chaotic options on society as a whole right now. That's what these transitions provide. They provide incarnational opportunities for people. And then they provide incarnational opportunities for highly refined people who also get to tell the difference from being good merely because everybody around me was following the rules and so I followed them also. Good meaning in tune with, with, with true dharma. We get to find out when I have free choices, what choices do I actually make? You know, what is my actual taste and inclination? Because it, it, it's helpful, of course, for self-discipline to be in an atmosphere that supports what you're trying to do. You know, you enter a monastery not because you're already free of all worldly impulses, but because you recognize the desire and the commitment in yourself. So you put yourself into an atmosphere that will support your ability to do that. That's just common sense. 
it's, it's folly to, to imagine that you can be strong against temptation if temptation is all around you. That was Master's statement, environment is stronger than willpower. I remember when I first heard that when I was about 19. I, I just arrogantly said, no, it isn't. <laughs> I just didn't, I didn't like the idea that I could be influenced. And of course it took me time to become honest and humble enough to realize, yeah, it sure is. And, and you remove yourself from temptation and often you're quite free then. It's not like your mind clings. If your mind clings, you have to find another solution. But many times, just get away from it and it goes out of your mind entirely. When I lived a monastic life for about ten years, my first ten years, it was extremely interesting to me how, when I just lived among women and just committed myself, uh, I, I guess I just... I, the, the concept of gender gradually began to fade from my mind, my own gender primarily, because there was nothing reinforcing it. When there's, when there's not an opposite, it just the, the, the whole idea of it began to fade. It was very interesting and very powerful. I, could really, I really grew to appreciate uh, what the benefit of that kind of life is. It builds your own discrimination because it gave me an experience of a kind of freedom that I'd, I had never known until then. I'd been a, a, a normal, reasonably attractive, very uh, ordinary girl. You know, I dated, I had boyfriends. You know, I just, the whole story was there for me. And, and so without even knowing it, I was swimming in a world of gender identity all the time. But I just never, I didn't, it was so natural that I didn't even know I was doing it until I went into an atmosphere where there was a real... Um, lack of that. Ananda itself um, was very gender neutral, especially in those first ten years when so many people had engaged in the monastic life. It just created an atmosphere in which even people who are couples were very impersonal in public, to, to a fault, really. But because the monastic so defined things, even those who weren't monastic kind of hid uh, that, uh, that side of themselves out of consideration. It wasn't out of shame. It was just out of consideration. So there was a very interesting atmosphere. But what that did is that awoke in me, and that gave me an experience, that awoke in me a realization about a potential that I would never have known otherwise. But the end point of it is that it all comes down to I have experienced this, or I have glimpsed it. Realization is far above merely glimpsing something, but if you even glimpse it, then your discrimination is honed because you know where you're going. It's not just words on a paper that you've thought about. And this other phrase that he uses, which is so interesting, reason can tell you how things occur. <laughs> um, however, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't show one the subtle interrelationship between things. Elsewhere, Master made the fascinating statement because things apparently, because things seem to follow each other sequentially in time, you know, because one thing happens now and then the next thing happens and the next things, it gives us the false impression that one thing causes another. That was the way Master put it. I mean, it was just such an interesting idea that 
you know, one thing would cause something else. Of course we think it does. We don't see the subtle interrelationships, even among past lives and karma that's been sown for a long time ago that is a, a, a karmic tree that we've been watering for many incarnations and the fruit has finally fallen on our head or been handed to us or whatever it is. And we think that the, immediate, the event immediately before caused that to happen. We don't understand how much magnetism has gone forward in, in some experiences that I've had um, relatively recently. I was very aware of the fact that, that certain experiences catalyzed my response, but in no way did it cause my response. That my response was like already in me just waiting for somebody to open the door enough for my feelings to come, my karma, my vrittis, to come spilling out. And it was helpful, of course, because I've been on this path for a long time, to be able to see that even though I was focusing on recent events, the, the response had nothing to do with the present. When I went through a particular astrological period uh, an astrologer said to me, you're working, out, um, you're working out issues, he said, that have been with you for so many incarnations, he said, don't even try to connect them to anything that's actually going on, <laughs> which was very helpful, because you get into fear, you get into grief, you get into sadness, and you think one thing is causing another. But discrimination, if you exercise it, you begin to see this is not proportional. Or you think that somebody actually caused something. I was talking to someone not too long ago and they, were, they had been through a gigantic experience and some person's action had triggered that experience and they were quite upset with that other person for what they had done, what they perceived to be a wrong action. I said, you know, you're giving that person way too much credit. They really do not have the power to create this much karma in your life. The karma was just there waiting to happen and all that person did was just open the door. They did not create what came running through that door. They were just there. In a weird way, Master made the dual statement that Hitler was not personally responsible for what happened in Germany. By no means did he get good karma, so don't misunderstand. He said, but the karma of the country and of the Jewish people was there to have its experience and Hitler was the vehicle for it, but he, he didn't cause it. He, he just was, he, he helped facilitate everybody's karma in that situation. Um, that doesn't exonerate him, but the distinction was what was interesting. He said Stalin, by contrast, was personally responsible for what he did, just karmically. I mean, it was, it's, it's a distinction that you just kind of have to sit and ponder because without master's, perspective on really being able to see the past lives and all of that, you don't really know what you're looking at. But still, it's it just the fact of him saying that makes you realize that things are not always as obvious as they are. I remember during the period of time when, when uh, people would carry those big um, tape recorders, I guess they were tape recorders, they'd carry them on their shoulders and this big loud music would come out and of course, I never have been a fan of, fan of that kind of sound, ever. And I said something to Swami, something like, 
they seem like perfectly ordinary nice people, but they're walking around blasting that stuff through their brains. Swami's answer was actually really interesting. Oh, he said, if you could see the karma. If you could see the karma, is what he said. Yeah. It was like, that's what you think. I mean, he wasn't... We we had just seen a couple of people go by, so he wasn't speaking about everyone who carried a big tape recorder on their shoulder, but if you could see the karma, then things would look very different to us. Even ourselves, you know, if, if... titanically unpleasant or seemingly unfair or utterly upsetting things happen to us and there has been something that happened just before it, we have a tendency to think that one thing causes another because we can't see the subtle interrelationships. Discrimination, which requires introspection and tremendous humility and self-honesty. I remember in this context many years ago I was accused of something Exactly what it was, I don't remember. It was some kind of an emotional circumstance where some people were accusing me of something that I hadn't done at all. Um, However, I realized the only reason I hadn't done it is because I hadn't had an opportunity to do it. That's the only way I can put it. It wasn't that I wasn't capable. And it wasn't a very laudable action, as I recall. The details escaped me. But I knew that I was perfectly capable of that. I, I, I didn't happen to be guilty, but I, I essentially knew I was guilty. And they were just um, catching me for whatever I got away with in the past that was still a potential in my nature. And, you know, that's, that's the subtle interrelationships between things, which is the difference between the truth and the facts. And, and with Swamiji, he was so conscious of the power of positive magnetism that he, his primary concern in any situation was to keep the, the positive magnetic potential going. And he didn't, want to he, he didn't want to hear all the details of what the obstacles were and why we couldn't do it for this way and how so-and-so wasn't really available and that one wasn't really competent, which was information I always seemed to think he needed to have. And finally, he just said to me, you're just so negative. I don't, didn't think of myself at all as negative. I thought I was very enthusiastic. And then he said, because you insist on being so, and then he went like this, factual. And I, it was a very important lesson for me, because I realized how often I felt obligated to offer the facts when I saw people getting too positive. I needed to be sure and tell them that it was going to fail. Like, What? Where does this come from? But, but, and if it did fail, I mean, it was going to fail anyway. It didn't need me to, you know, like pronounce the doom ahead of time. Um, and often things would work because of the magnetism would create opportunities that were not obvious. And if you didn't have that magnetism, those opportunities wouldn't come. It's very, very subtle. Um, let's see, it was, uh, Master said something in some context, like the law of karma, you know, just one reality after another, how the cause and effect of karma. He said, but for devotees it's different because the grace of God just changes your karma. So once you get on the spiritual path and once you become devoted to God, even the law of karma operates differently because the guru can always insert himself between you and your karma. Because the, the only purpose of 
the karmic balance is for you to learn what, for us to learn what we need to learn. And if we've already learned it, then there's that, there's no point in it happening. And also, if we've already learned it, we've created a very powerful, positive magnetic field in it, which behaves literally exactly like the atmosphere of the planet, where a large object can enter in, but it gets burned up before it actually reaches the Earth's surface. And so we may have sent some um, energy out, God knows when we sent it out, but in the interim, before the conflicting cross-currents of ego resolve themselves sufficient for it to come to us, we may have changed to such an extent that the atmosphere it enters into only allows a sliver of it to come in, or the positive energy burns it up, or the Guru's grace um, changes it. This is what we call mitigated karma, and mitigated by the grace of God. And it, it's always a good habit, no matter what happens, to assume it would have been worse if you weren't a disciple, <laughs> that Master mitigated it. And, you know, Master himself said it maybe you're supposed to lose a hand and instead you'll break a finger or something like that. You just won't, it won't come to you as it was meant to come to you. Swami's favorite story about that was him talking about when, in uh, 1978, when he set out on his joy tour around the world, um, this gentleman named Roger Hodgson, who was uh, the lead singer in the number one band in the world at that time, which was Supertramp. And, uh, he, he was with us for a time there. And when Swamiji started on that trip, Roger said to him, uh, you know, I travel and tour all the time, because that's what he did. He said, uh, and I know how difficult it is, he said, I would like to buy you a motorhome, because they were driving around the United States. He said, I think it'll make your trip much easier. And Swamiji was just so delighted, because he'd, he said he'd always seen himself. You know, Master made what he called a house car, uh, Durgamata tells the story. Master himself, you know, got a, a truck chassis and a railroad car, and he had Durgamata weld them together. And so he could have a house car. He had the, an early version of a motorhome. And then they took it out, and we'd go camping, and it was Master loved having it. So Swamiji always had had the vision in his mind of traveling around the United States in a motorhome. But they're quite expensive. And so when Roger offered to buy him that, it completely changed the, pers- the prospect of this four-month tour he was setting out on, and it just absolutely delighted him. And he said when they got the motor home, and you know, he had it, and it was his home, and he was all moved in, and they're driving across, he said he was skipping up and down the aisle. He was just so happy to have it. And he said he knew that if he allowed himself to become happy because of the motor home, that there would be a karmic balance that would inevitably come in. And then um, they were stopped outside of Safeway buying groceries. And Swami always tells the story like it was left in gear, but I suspect, but more sensibly, it was left in neutral because it started creeping imperceptibly toward the wall of the store. I mean, very, it was moving very slowly. And Swamiji was in the back. They had like a closed-off bedroom in the back. He was in the back. He, he was on one knee on the bed, and he was reaching up to the shelf like this when it hit the wall. So he was so off balance that when it hit the wall, it threw him into the aisle. And he put his hand out to break his fall and broke his middle finger. And as soon as his finger broke, he said he just began to laugh and laugh 
because there it was. <laughs> you know, it had happened. He'd, 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 let it, he'd let it make him happy so it hurt him, and now it was all balanced and he was fine. <laughs> and, he, you know, he never complained, and he, he, he played the guitar. He managed. He just managed everything with a broken finger after that. But, you know, this is discrimination. This is seeing that that was virtually instant karma, which is easier to see than karma that comes at you from who knows where. But that's what discrimination does for us. And it's absolutely essential on the spiritual path that we understand the nature of reality. The way he puts it here, that discrimination, it is the wave aware that it is dancing on the ocean of spirit. It's a really interesting way to pay, pay it. Wisdom comes with deepening one's perception of the absolute. And this, you know, later in my life, I learned the difference between knowledge and wisdom, and that was my first, when I first went to Stanford and realized that all they could give me was knowledge. And I just, from past lives, I just knew the limits of knowledge. I wanted somebody who was wise. And all these people had lots of knowledge and were very intelligent in their knowledge. But what good was it going to do me? I just couldn't see any value in collecting all that information. I mean, if I'd wanted to be a doctor or something like that, or where you, where you have to have a lot of information, but I wanted to be a happy person, and I wanted to serve the world, and I knew that I couldn't serve the world with knowledge. And, and not only were they not wise, they didn't even seem to understand the difference. It was very disheartening for me because, after all, Stanford was an extremely prestigious university, and it was like, if not here, then where will I ever find it? I, I didn't yet know at all about Eastern religion. It just never had occurred to me. It, 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 when it occurred to me, it occurred to me with a gigantic, hello, here I am, this is what you've been looking for. But then all of a sudden, oh, this is wisdom. This is about the nature of life. This is the exact story that Swami tells in the path. It's the new path, the story of his life. He just, he went step by step through all the options and then finally realized what he was really looking for was truth. And this is where it says, deepening one's perception of the absolute with a capital A. You know, these words like absolute with a capital A would not, were simply not acceptable on college campuses. They're not acceptable because there's this, even now it's much worse. There's this absolute commitment to making sure that we don't discriminate against any options. You know, we just, we have this weird commitment to making sure that we have no values. We've just, we've just determined that there are no values except what I want. Swami's comment in some class I listened to, I think I mentioned it, where he talked about the essential disease of our age that's causing everything is, is greed. And what I, his remark, which I've probably said on these classes already, but it's so good I'll repeat it. He said, again, I'm not talking about Wall Street or the bankers or the fraudulent stock, stock exchange or anything like that. I mean, fraud on the stock exchange or anything like that. He said, those people are just successful at doing what everyone is trying to do, <laughs> is that they have managed to get a great deal for themselves, but that's what everyone is trying to do. Because... When you're not part of a greater reality, why would you not do that? And if there's no, if you don't know, 
if you no longer believe in hell and you don't know about karma in a way that you really know it, then why would you not? And that's where we are right now. And, as I said at the beginning, this is also the good news. Because I, I remember speaking to someone who's now not quite 30. And um, in his late teens, he, he just described some situation to me which was so amoral. And I was so impressed by the fact... That, I mean, he's a person of high values, but he, he just didn't realize, as I said to him, you have no idea how morally depraved what you just told me is. <laughs> I mean, it was just... Uh, the, the details of it I don't remember, but it was just so... Well, if I can have it for myself, why wouldn't I take it? And it wasn't evil, it was just... It was self-centered indulgence without any concept of consequences. I said, you just have no idea how morally depraved that is. Because it was just what was around him. And afterwards I thought, now that's a really quick way to get him to stop talking to me. So perhaps I need to mitigate that a little bit. If I wish to close the door to all communication, this will do it. You know, the old woman tutting in the corner (laughs) about the lost generation. Like, who would ever want to speak to her? So I had to think about it, and I went back, and I said, well, the really good news is, whatever values you and your whole crowd develop, they will, you will actually find them for yourself. You know, meaning, if you ever have any values, they'll be real. And you see, the difference between values that you know from discrimination versus values that you've just learned um, is, is everything. Because a value that you know from discrimination... Well, I had this funny experience many years ago when we were at Ananda Village and the retreat was still up at the meditation retreat. The whole expanding light thing didn't exist. Whenever guests came, they had to somehow make their way up that six miles of rutted road up to the retreat for all the classes and so on. And some uh, guests showed up. Some young man was hitchhiking and he managed to show up in time for a class I was giving in. Part of my class was reincarnation and stuff like that. And then I guess I was, had a car, so I, I drove him back. So we're, we're right in the middle of what is uh, the moonscape there that's all where the, all the land has been damaged by the hydraulic mining from so long ago. So you, you're absolutely in the middle of nowhere. There's no sign of, or very little sign of civilization. So he waited till we were there. I felt like he wanted to make sure that there were no cameras or no recordings or... There was no such thing as drones or cell phones at that time, but then he said to me, do you really believe that stuff? (laughs) It's like, it's just you, me, and the automobile. You can be frank. (laughs) But I appreciated the question. I said, well, when I was first introduced to it, I didn't know. But I started, I was intrigued, and I started trying to understand life through the filter of reincarnation and karma. And I just gradually became convinced because it really, it really worked, whereas nothing that anybody else had ever told me ever worked. And it, then it's just like, I mean, that's the smallest thing. If you've experienced the grace of God in your life, if you've been rescued by the divine hand, if you've ever had true intuition where you, you just know that this is superconscious and this is correct, or, or a dream or something like that. Nobody can t- dissuade you from it. You might not 
always have the courage to stand up for it. You can be frightened into silence. But nobody can really dissuade you. It's like people have these after-death experiences. It just doesn't matter in return experiences. It's more real than anything else they experience. I was remembering this funny interchange I had when I went on my first lecture tour. Um, So it would have been like 1980 or something like that. When would it have been? In any case, um, and I had a slideshow of Ananda, all these beautiful pictures of our little community up there, which in that time was much more primitive. And I would give these programs. We set up these little programs with bookstores and meditation groups. And uh, I'd show all these pictures, and they were, you know, of course, they were idyllic pictures, little children playing with baby goats, you know, and organic tomatoes and everybody piled in the back of a pickup truck. I mean, we looked like we were having so much fun. And uh, rainbows over meadows. You know. And almost always somebody would, I, and I would talk about the philosophy and how we lived, and almost always somebody would say something to me like, well, that, that works for you all, but what about when you have to live in the real world? And I would give them a very serious answer, you know, about how it actually can be transferred to the real world and I, I, and I, I guess partly because after six weeks I got tired. But after about the beginning of week number six of this whole thing, when somebody asked that question, I realized, there's a really stupid question, and I've been taking it seriously this whole time. It's like the real world is the enduring inner world, the world that is always with you. The fake world is, the, is all of this rushing around, trying to keep yourself distracted, from your actual reality. I said, at Ananda, at that time, we had no television, we had no radio, we had no place we could go. Most of us did not have automobiles. You, you couldn't even leave the land except with a group of people. And, when, and everybody always knew where everyone was. You know, if you didn't show up for Sunday service, somebody would go to where you lived to make sure you hadn't died in the night. I mean, it was just like, it, it, it just what it was. There was, you had no... Uh, uh, anonymity. You were just, everything about you was out front and people were so intuitive, everybody knew everything. And you were alone with yourself all the time. And the atmosphere was constantly forcing you, all that meditation and all those other people who meditated were constantly forcing you into a real relationship with yourself. And you were, you were in the real world in a way that you never were when you went to a job where you only showed people a tiny sliver of who you were, where people didn't know your character, where you could leave and go anywhere at all and no one would ever know where you were, where you could drink and take drugs and watch television and you know visit any kind of centrally inspired atmosphere that you wanted to, anything. You could do anything you wanted to escape the un bearable reality of being with yourself. It's like, what's the real world here? Which is the real one? I mean, I got real feisty. Because it was the truth. You know, and this is where he says, wisdom comes with deepening one's perception of the absolute with a capital A, which is that which is always there. And that's what we're working with. And it's no small journey I was having a discussion with someone a a while ago, and, you know, well, I think of it like this. I was thinking about myself recently. You think you're fine, 
and then God steps on you. And and I I have you know how I have this toothpaste that I have that which is a little runnier than most toothpaste because of whatever it is. It's some special organic whatever it is. And every so often I forget. And if you squeeze it in an ordinary way, a whole lot of it comes shooting out of the tube. You know, and when the, the tubes used to be not plastic, sometimes they would develop holes in other places and all of that. <laughs> you, I just feel like God just, every so often he just puts his heel down on you and you just spew out in all directions, you know. Holes are created that you didn't know were there and just you didn't know what you had inside of you until... He ratchets it up. And then it's not caused by what happens. It caused, it's, caused, it's caused by the fact that you're ready to hear it. Someone was also going through some you know, really terrible experience. I said, wow, God really is, is really... Tr- um, I mean, this is really good news. Because God would never give anyone so much trouble if he didn't have <clears throat> faith in the fact that it, you were ready for it. I mean, you just, just the slightest turn and you see it differently. Because we're not free just because we don't know it. This was once with, I was with Swami. I, I had this person that I didn't get along with at Ananda. And then finally, physically, we were separated. And then I was able to tune into the real deep karmic friendship. The present personalities didn't get along, but there was a real heart and soul connection. And I became so convinced of that connection when the opportunity came to spend time with the person, I just did. And in about 35 minutes, I was ready to scream again. And it was very disheartening to me because I really thought I had grown past it. And I was in the car with Swamiji and I was literally, I was weeping and I was just wailing about how sad I was and I thought that I was over this and now I'm not like this. He said, well, this is good news. And I just looked at him like, you're crazy. This is not good news. He said, because you thought you were over it. You weren't putting out any energy. He said, now you know. You know, that's how seriously he took it. Now you know. Now you know you can keep working on it. And I, at that time, I couldn't. I couldn't rise to it. I was too busy feeling terrible. But I didn't forget at all. Then just God steps on you hard and whatever unfinished karma there is comes spewing out in all directions, we think we've done something wrong. And now, you know, this person I was talking to a while ago, I said, look, this is good news. This is the spiritual path. You know, it's not the romance of just Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. You know, it's like you look in the mirror and you think, oh my God, is this who I am? Yeah. I mean, that's when it gets real, is when you actually have to face who I am and what I have to learn and, 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 and it comes exactly when it's supposed to you know, if it's happening to you it's because you're ready for it it's not because so and so did it to you so and so did it to you it's because you're ready for it and so we do not see the subtle interrelationships of things, our discrimination is tuned into the absolute and it says, oh I'm ready for this. God sent it to me. And he used the little feeble things around you, a false accusation or betrayal or, or theft or whatever it might be that, that steps on you and causes us to find out who we are. 
I mean, I don't have any more fun with it than anybody else. You know, it's, I'm, I'm way not calm. But discrimination helps. It helps a lot. All right, let's take a short break. During the break, we were having a little conversation about this news magazine. Well, I say magazine. It was in 1972. The cover story for the color magazine for the L.A. Times was about Ananda. And it, it was, I had, it had been passed through Facebook or something, and I just looked at the pictures, but hearing some of the text, it, and just realizing what that time was like and what it looked like. And it, it was, anyway, it's quite fun. You can probably look it up because it's circulating now. It was an adventure. Mm. So here we are now. How did we get from there to here? I have to say, I mean, I never... Um, I mean, we dropped out, and I never expected to be thrown back in. <laughs> I just thought I was going to go, you know, off into my forest hermitage. And we lived a... Um, fantasy world is not at all true because we were intensely, just what I was saying before the break, we were intensely engaged in the spiritual path, intensely engaged in self-realization with no, very few distractions, as intensely as one could be when one was kind of a spiritual moron. But that's just beside the point. (laughs) Spiritual moron is the word I said. Um, But... uh, I just never imagined that I would spend so much of my life in an urban center. I never even imagined the concept of urban center. I just had washed my hands of uh, society as a whole and was off in my Himalayan cave. And we were very, very Indian at that point. Swami Kriyananda was much closer to the years he'd spent in India. 1972, it had been 10 years since he'd been there at that point. He didn't go, he actually went back in 72, but... He had his hair long. He, he, all summer he wore a dhoti. And there's pictures of him in a dhoti with bare chest and his rudraksha beads and his long hair. I mean, it was just like we were just Indian in our version of India. But I, I remember living at the meditation retreat and um, we didn't have electricity except the generator that pumped the water. And therefore, if you knew exactly when it was going to go on, you could blend something in the refrigerator, in the uh, kitchen, but really had no electricity. And so it was very dark. And, and you were completely always in relation to the moon and the stars because it was so dark. I remember one night I was heading back from my trailer, which was whatever it was, a quarter of a mile away from the central area. I got lost. Somehow I got off the trail. And I just had no idea where I was. And I remember I just sort of sat down. And then I heard someone coming, and I, you know, like Piglet, I went, help, help. I was about two feet off the trail. (laughs) Really, I mean, it was comical. They flash a flashlight on me, and I'm just virtually just sitting right there, but I had no idea where I was, and I thought it wiser to stop. But uh, the, the, the dust was very, very fine. Very this fine red dust, which I think is still there, and uh, I, we went barefoot all the time through the summer, and we'd walk on that fine red dust. It was just—it's such a vivid impression in my mind of just living that simply, and you just walk through the woods in your bare feet on these little paths, and into your little tiny trailer, which 
you know, the grass grew through the floor. It just, it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And I used to think, and just think, as I get older, I'll have even less. That was just my picture. I'll have even less. The little I have, I'll have even less. So to find myself where I've been for such a long time was a little startling. And I remember when they put gravel down on those paths, you know, like civilization. They put, because we had guests, and the guests got really lost too. So they put gravel down on the paths, which is actually helpful because it reflected. But it was noisy. And all of a sudden, everybody, you could hear people walking around at night. And you couldn't go barefoot on the gravel. It's just like, life was so simple that when, because nobody actually realized the implications of it, it just seemed like a good idea to put down the white gravel. It's just strange how different life can be in a different phase. Of course, then the phase ended and something else started. I'm reminded of that um, in, a, in a book I read about Crazy Horse. Um, he talked about the fact that their buffalo skin teepees on the plains of the, of the United States were, were, were silent even in the most fierce winds because the buffalo skins were so heavy that the wind, they weren't affected by the wind. And then the buffalo were wiped out by the white man and they came, had to go live by the trading posts and then they were given canvas to make teepees. But the canvas flapped in the wind and suddenly they were living in this cacophonous noise all the time. And he talked about how, you know, even that he was willing to accept rather than the death of his people. But, you know, the white men didn't even know. Oh, here's, here's this canvas, this will work just as well. You know, it's just like it, living that natural and then just every increment moves you just a little bit farther away. But it's necessary. It just, it, it, in Kali Yuga descending, which is you get to go away. You just get to go off to the monastery because what is the point of building anything? It's just going to get wiped out by the barbarians in the end anyway. And so you have to isolate yourself in order to keep civilization alive, which is exactly what the monasteries did and the cave dwellers and the desert people. But in, in Dwapar Yuga rising, you have to build because it, it, the age is opening up and expanding and you have to lay the groundwork for a future. So, so dharma is quite different. And personal preference is quite irrelevant. You know, when Swami protested to Master, when Master told him that he was going to have to lecture, and Swami said, I don't want to lecture. And Master said, living for God is martyrdom. It's what you're going to have to do. You might as well get used to it. I mean, and Swami remarked, he got like zero sympathy from Master. And it, it was partly like, great, greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. This is all from the Festival of Light. Such ever is the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. That all sounds terrific. Isn't that great? They're so generous. Then comes the next line. Here, then, is the fourth and last stage. You know, we've gone through the mission and the revolt and the quest, and this is the darn fourth and last stage, which is who cares what you want? You know, is your, who are you living for? And it's, it's a very tricky line. I mean, this is all the God stepping on your head in the toothpaste tube image that I was using before because 
Most people who come on the path are pretty nice already, you know, and they're creative and generally their, their tastes run on a refined scale, generally, not everyone, but, and they want to help people and so on like that. So you can look really good for a long time without actually doing anything <laughs> because you just uh, express who you already are. And then at some point, God steps on your head and you find out that there's a lot more that you could be. So it, that, that's what I was saying also earlier, talking to someone, oh, this is good news. Look, God really thinks that you're ready to grow and you've been cruising on what you already accomplished. I mean, like, what good is that? I was, this morning, in a wholly different context, I was talking about the difficulty I had. I lived in El Paso, Texas until I was 15, which I don't, I, I just saw in the paper today that El Paso has become a big scene of border crossing controversy right now because it's right, whereas in El Paso are twin cities, Mexico, Texas, right there. It was not an elevated atmosphere, to put it mildly. It was not a, a, an intellectually brilliant atmosphere. First my brother and then me. You know, we were a lot, a lot more school smart than most of the people in the school. So as a consequence, it's just like where there was, I could just do it without ever doing anything. And it took nothing from me to appear to be really exceptional. And because I was 15 before I left there and came to Southern California and a couple of years in a much more uh, elevated school atmosphere, it still was pointless for me, but um, I developed a, a weirdly, I developed a profound insecurity, which was karmic anyway, because I knew, because I seemed to be excelling and I knew I was doing nothing. Because I wasn't doing anything I didn't already know. And it, but doing what I could just do in my sleep, virtually, was enough to put me at the top of the heap. But it, it just scared the life out of me because I knew I was doing nothing. Now, what was the point of that? How did that relate? What were we talking about? Um, oh, it was about, spiritually speaking, just because you can get by, and that's one of the great benefits of spiritual community, is because if you're the only one around who is even slightly calm or knows anything about the teachings or meditates at all, you get the impression that you're pretty hot stuff. But if you're in a community where, the, where a lot of people are already doing what you're doing and you, you don't get a, a medal for just showing up, you get to actually see what's possible and be held accountable for who you really are, then it gets interesting, which is which for me, when I finally found Ananda and met kindred spirits and met people who were as intensely serious about life as I was, which I'd never known anybody who was as intensely serious about life as I was until I met my first group of spiritual people and soon after that Ananda. It was just like, I was so relieved, you know. Otherwise, I just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, all of this comes back to discrimination and all of this comes back to when your life begins to fall apart, isn't that good news? Because now you really get to find out of what stuff we are made. I was, uh, my same Episcopal priest friend 
was part of a Jewish-Christian dialogue group. And he thought it would be really cute to bring his Jewish-born Kriya Yogi self-realizationist to his Jewish-Christian discussion group. He just thought that would be a lark, so he invited me. And it was the, the rabbi's turn to set the agenda, and so they had passed out a series of uh, articles for people to read, which people had read in advance, so my friend gave them to me. And they were about um, the Holocaust, because understandably, uh, Jewish people tend to feel that it's important for people to understand all of these things in order to understand the Jewish experience. And so there were several that were, as they always, were predictable. And then there was one short article that was completely out of the box. It described those years as the shining hour of the Jewish people because absolutely everything was taken away from us and we had an opportunity to show the power of nothing but faith in God. So I thought that was marvelous. You know, just like it was a whole, there was no reference to Sanat and Dharma, but it was a whole twist on the whole thing. I couldn't get anybody, either the rabbis or the, the, the Episcopalians, to pay any attention to it. I, I mean, the, the rabbis had, had selected it, but apparently nobody in the room was willing to claim it because they, they just didn't know what to do with it. You know, it was just, it was too much about discrimination and the absolute. And they wanted to keep it on the cultural level like that. You know, it's, it's, to be on the spiritual path is not to live an ordinary life. And you can be on the path on many, uh, in many ways. But if you're serious, pretty soon you end up being drawn in. This is, again, going back to 1972 in those first ten years... But, you know, it was such a fun adventure. Everything about it was so much fun. Um, I remember when I was talking to Swamiji about that I was expressing to him this concern that I still have to a certain extent. Am I actually wiser or am I just older? You know, am I, am I, do I behave better because I'm a little worn out? Which means as soon as I get a brand new bed, body, I'll just be as much of a stinker as I was before. <laughs> or have I actually become good? It worries me. So I was actually asking that question, but he either didn't understand it or didn't feel it was serious enough to answer. But he, he said, uh, reincarnation is caused by two things, longing and regret, which was an absolutely great answer. If you long for something you didn't have, it draws you back. If you regret experiences and feel the need that you have to get a chance to fix them, he said that's what, that's what brings you back again and again. Well, I said, Swamiji, the first ten years at Ananda were heaven on earth. I would repeat them in a heartbeat. He said, oh, that's different. <laughs> he said, that's, that's desireless desire. That's the desire for that which, which, which dissolves all desires. You know, it was just like, it was, it was just so much fun. But gradually, it never stopped being fun. It was always fun. But gradually we began to realize what we'd gotten ourselves into. There was just absolutely no context for it because it was, except for Swami, there was nobody older than us. I mean, Satya was uh, like 50 when we were 30, which was just positively ancient. And Hanel was the same age as Swami, but they were just 
like the two of them. And Swami was so ageless, you never thought of him as having any age at all. And there was just, there was no upper level. Swami was a whole another order of mag- magnitude, and then there was just the rest of us. So we could sort of just make it up. We didn't have any context until, over time, it began to reveal itself. And, and it was a joke, but it was a kind of a hollow, mirthless joke <laughs> that <clears throat> we were too far into it to turn back <laughs> and too far away from the goal to feel really comfortable with what was happening, which was a realization that just came on slowly. That was where the phrase, the icky middle, came from, that we were just in the icky middle of the spiritual path. It wasn't pure joy, it, well, the, the way... We put it as we were too far from shore to swim back and we weren't close enough to the island to be confident we could make it. So we were treading water thinking about our options. <laughs> I mean, it was all good-humored, but it was very real. And, and what happens on the path, this is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is, I know this, I can repeat that, I've memorized half the book whispers, you know, I can do this, I do my kriyas every morning, I mean, you know, this is what I know what I'm supposed to be doing. But then you, you begin to understand what, it, what the path really is. And then, then people have to decide whether I'm really going to do this or not. Which is why people would leave Ananda after 20 years. You would think after 20 years you would have had enough experience, but it would just begin to push on you a little harder. And you would have to ask yourself, almost no one has left that was a surprise. Just a few. It's an odd way to put it. But you could, you, you could see that sometimes people would, were always trying to play both sides and just thinking they could get away with it. And, and you know, 20 years on the, of serious spiritual effort is a, real, is a real good contribution to your future. It's by no means nothing. You know, like, as Swami said to us, only a few people have lifelong spiritual karma. Most people just have a little. And so they run it for a while, and then basically the fuel runs out. And there's nothing wrong. That's just other karmas take over. But, but otherwise, every time God steps on you, it's, it's an opportunity for you to ask yourself again, why am I here and what do I really believe? You're just like, seriously, why do I believe this? That's why when we were sued, first lawsuit, you know, was just a theological dispute that went into it. The second lawsuit was just a pure character assassination on all of Ananda and Swamiji and all of us, really. And it was great because, you know, there was this implication that we we all had just been hoodwinked by these really evil people. And so you actually had to ask yourself, why am I here? You know, what do I believe? You know, is there, do I really think this is possible? And so if you didn't leave, you, you answered those questions on a much deeper level. That's why being thrown to the lions is really good karma. Because when you get thrown to the lions, you get to find out whether you're really serious about the spiritual path. It can't, do I really think that this isn't a life or death matter? So, I mean, they, they, they could make huge progress being eaten by lions every once in a while. I mean, 
not that we want to be. It's very scary, but um, if you can if you can stand that strong when so much is at stake, then you really have something. I mean, when, and I've said this before, when we were in the midst of all that persecution with the lawsuit especially, the second lawsuit, when people would come to me and, you know, want me to reassure them, I most of the time refused to do it. I would give people information because I was privy to an enormous amount of information so I could tell them lots of facts. But I tried very hard not to persuade. Because, gosh, if you need me to persuade you, um, you're not very solid and you need to sort that out. I remember this one woman who sort of put her head in the sand for five or six years. Finally, it just got too hot. We were meeting once a week and keeping everybody informed. And finally, it just got too much and she came and asked me. I said, where have you been? She says, well, I, I, just thought I, I just thought I would ignore it. I said, well, how has that worked out for you? You know, now you're six years behind because this thing went on for 12. I said, now you don't know anything because you haven't had the courage to, what? To really look things in the eye. I, I, do I think it's easy? No, it's horrid. But welcome to the spiritual path. I don't mean to end on this very grim note. <laughs> But it's real. It's the real world. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's the real world. And when you come to bliss on the other side of it, you really have something. You don't just have the reassurance that I've always gone to Mass and therefore I'm going to heaven. You have the absolute knowledge within yourself that you are a wave on the ocean of spirit and you're in touch with the absolute. And then you have it forever doesn't mean you won't be tested, because until we're perfect, we'll keep being tested. But there's a certain point at which you don't have to ask yourself anymore. You know, who am I? You just know who you are. And you, you pray that you'll have the courage to face what comes to you. But fundamentally, you know who you are. That's a wonderful place. I mean, think about what that means. Just think about it. How many people just wander this world without a clue? What does it mean to know I am a disciple of a great master? I belong to the spiritual path. I am a self-realizationist. And I may not be a very good one. That's how I always think of it. I may not be a very good one, you know, and I may, be the, I may be the, have the last place on the list of disciples, but I am on the list. <laughs> and Master promised he would keep coming back. And that's enough, because that's enormous. Okay, that'll do it for tonight. And we did, I believe, one. Well, when I saw what it was, it's number 366 is the only one we did tonight.